Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I am your host of the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I will be interviewing a number of amazing people and simply having a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive in. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's S-double-E, changehappen.co.uk. You'll be able to catch up with all of the shows on iTunes, Spotify, and of course, the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 12, with the title, Finding Your Courage and Voice to Speak Out. And I have the absolute honor and privilege to be joined by Madeline Black. I met Madeline at an annual convention of the professional speakers in Coventry, all places. Madeline describes herself as someone who speaks out against sexual violence to end shame, stigma, and the silence, and to help others find their courage and voice too. I asked Madeline to describe her superpower, and she said, her voice and ability to speak out. So hello, Madeline. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Amazing. Thank you for joining me. So tell me, finding your courage and voice to speak out, what does that mean to you? Well, you know, for years, it was my shame that silenced me. I was so ashamed of my history, my own story, that I just assumed if people knew that they wouldn't want to know me, they would be horrified, they would look at me differently. But finding my voice to speak out is really stepping into that shame and not really worrying now what people, what their opinion will be of me uh, and speaking out anyway. Shame is, yeah, I've I've listened to a lot of Brene Brown talks and and she talks about the difference between shame and vulnerability and all these other aspects. And, And shame can almost destroy people, can't it? It really affect their mental health. Absolutely. It it really took away my voice, my ability to speak, and it silenced me for years. You know, it took me um, 35 years to share my story publicly, uh, a long time. Really, it was shame is just a horrible, horrible thing to hold on to. Yeah, I mean, I see, I still talk to many people who, for whatever reason, don't feel able to speak their own truth. You know, we, we talk about this, bring your whole self to work. But there's still much of our personalities that we just don't feel able to bring to work. And we're so conscious about how people will see us negatively by sharing this inner secret, don't we? Absolutely. The fear of being judged by others is huge. And actually, I'm a psychotherapist as well. So the judgment is often really what we do to ourselves. (laughs) The judgment is really coming from us. But then, sadly, also with stories of sexual violence, we're not supported by society because we have so much victim blaming and rape culture that doesn't help women or men to come out and share their stories either. Yeah, I'm... I've seen, I've seen a lot of this, and we still have these debates on the news and the press about the rights of the, the uh, often the woman, not always the woman, but often the woman who is not believed or there's doubt. Um, her credibility or their credibility is often questioned by the circumstance of, of, of how that occurred. Rather than seeing them as a person, they're seeing them as a, a person 
wearing certain clothes or in certain situations and almost attributing the blame onto putting themselves in danger. Absolutely. But, you know, lacy underwear, lacy thongs does not cause rape. A hundred percent of all rapes are caused by rapists because we know that babies in nappies are raped, women in burkas are raped, boys are raped. It wasn't their clothing that caused the rape at the end of the day. It, it was the rapists, the perpetrators who made the choice. I was recently just been asked to be a patron of another organization called Justice Is Now, an English organization, and they are working to campaign against rapists being used within the criminal justice system because for that very reason, you know, the judge will say, well, you were wearing a lacy thong, whatever, what do you expect? And, and no, it's nothing to do with your clothing. So I'm really pleased to be part of that, but really sad that this is still going on this rape culture, this victim-blaming society that we live in. Do you think this stems back from, I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking to bring it into context, all the midwife, you know, that kind of post-war 50s and 60s where there was, people didn't really express themselves until rock and roll came along. People would generally dress conservatively. Anybody who dressed less typically, more flamboyantly, was seen as somebody to be ashamed of. You know, you had to be a good little boy or a good little girl and dress smartly. And anybody who was maybe more flamboyant was seen as somebody not to aspire to and that bad things happened to those people. Is that, do you think it's rooted in that? It still comes down to judgments, doesn't it, at the end of the day, or this idea of how we have to conform and be a certain way. You can wear whatever you like. If you walk down the street naked, that's not an invitation to rape you. You know, it's, uh, I don't know where it stems from, but sadly, it's not just been around since the 1950s. Rape, sexual abuse, sexual violence has been around for, for a long, long time. We have many, many changes that need to happen. So it sounds to me that what you're saying, what I'm, what I'm hearing, is it's almost the rapist is trying to justify their actions, almost like trying to depersonalize it. It wasn't me. It wasn't my fault. I was, I was made to by the, what they were wearing. This yeah. is what they're trying to disassociate themselves with the act. It's, it's, Absolutely. Yeah. And then they're not taking any personal responsibility for something that they chose to do. Um, I never invited to be gang raped at 13 or three more times before I was 18. It was, I know now it was nothing to do with what I was wearing, drinking, smoking, where I was hanging out. It was down to the perpetrators of those events. Yeah. And I think another part of it is language as well, because I'm, I'm very conscious about you weren't the victim. You were the target of, so you're not a victim, are you? You're, you're the person well, that it was I, done I to. I guess technically, legally, I am a victim of a crime, but I, d I don't mind that word. It's okay. It doesn't impact on me because I guess victim also implies that you're weak. And there's this, but yeah, a crime was committed against my body. So I was a victim of a crime, but I also know now that I, I'm not my body. You know, I'm, I'm not the things that these people did to me. And that took me a long time to work out as well. For years, like we said at the start, I was so ashamed. I felt so terrified of people finding out that they would just be disgusted because it left me feeling so um, worthless. I thought I was contaminated, that I could spread that on to someone else, even if by touching me. But I realize now that that's not true. But that took a lot of work, a long time to find that out. But this is a combination of the perpetrator disassociating themselves by pushing the blame, mm -hmm. the system itself not supporting you 
in a respectful way by, by by trying to analyze whether you could have been the cause. Did you invite this by what you're wearing and behaving? Mm-hmm. So that you're, you're transferring all of this responsibility going, maybe it was me. Everyone's telling me it could be me. Maybe it was. And, and that's, that must be the hard thing to break out of. Yeah. And I was also the first time I was very young. I was only 13. It was, you know, the late 1970s. And I thought, well, we both lied about where we were staying. I had another girlfriend involved in the night and we'd met boys. We bought alcohol and we stayed in an empty flat. We had my friend's mum was away and we just thought we'd get into trouble. And also they were very violent, the two young men who chose to rape me that night. And they threatened me. You know, they told me that they would kill me if I spoke out. And after some of the things that he had done, I believed them. So that silenced me as well. For years, I was always looking over my shoulder, always worried that they would come back and find me. That must be very frightening because it's a way of silencing you and taking your power away again, isn't it? Absolutely. And I do believe it holds us back when we can't speak out. It just completely shut me down. And so much so, I guess it's almost like self-harm in a way. You know, I developed anorexia because what we don't speak about, it's got to come out somehow. You know, it's it has to come out. I always think what we don't speak about leaks out of us. I developed an eating disorder. I became suicidal. I attempted suicide, was in a children's psychiatric ward. I used drugs and alcohol really to numb out, to stop thinking and feeling. My family didn't know at the time and they nicknamed me the Ice Maiden because I practically stopped speaking as well for about three years. So, yeah, I shut down. I guess I imploded rather than exploded. And it's still happening in a, in a different sort of way on online today, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't have to be physical yeah. rape. I mean, okay, rape is rape and that's very defined, but there are ways one could be abused, thought, um, made to feel insecure online. And that's as powerful your mental impact as a physical act, isn't it? Yeah. I, I look at all these, um, female MPs that get the most vile tweets sent out to them just from doing their job every day, you know, wishing them dead, wishing them that they're going to be raped and swearing at them. And they don't deserve that. They're just going in to do their job, whatever political side you believe in, you know, that's, that's, they're not there to be a target for all of this hate, this online hate is sometimes social media is brilliant. And sometimes it's just a vile place. (laughs) Oh, for sure, for sure. And it's, it's, as soon as you lift the edge of the carpet up and look underneath, it, there is there's a lot. Of, there's a big cesspool under it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was on LinkedIn, I think, the other day, and I think a mutual friend of ours, uh, James McGinty, posted mm-hmm. something on on LinkedIn about um, how women, often women, mainly women, are being chatted up or having inappropriate comments made on a LinkedIn or on other professional platforms. And I've seen many of these posts in the past. And when you read the voices of the women and the people who've, who've been the targets, they have a very similar theme. And you don't know how much stalking has gone on before that post, you know, what, how often that person has gone onto other profiles and said the same things. And, and the debate was around, should I as a woman, should you as a woman pull that out publicly? 
ก็ไปจัดอ๋ออ๋ออ๋ออ๋ออ๋ออ๋ออ๋ออ๋ออ๋ออ๋ออ๋ออ๋ออ๋ออ๋ออ๋ออ๋ออ๋ออ๋ออ
six years ago, actually, in September, she said, you know, you can be anonymous. And at that point, I thought, I am tired of being ashamed for a crime committed against my body. So I think it has been a gradual process. And I had heard somebody else, we call ourselves stories from the Forgiveness Project. I'd heard another story. She was going to prison to meet the serial rapist who had broken into her home while she was asleep and had raped her. Her two-year-old was asleep in the room next door and her husband was away in hospital. He only stopped because the knife broke. He would have killed her. And I just thought, you know, gosh, if she can sit opposite this man in prison for a three-hour meeting, then I am going to share my photo and my name. And it's actually was the scariest thing I ever did, but the best thing I ever did because you can't, um, you can't eradicate shame by hiding in the shadows. You have to step into the shame to really go, well, you know, fuck it. This is me. I don't care who knows anymore. This is who I am. Uh, and so stepping into the shame, doing the things I would have run a million miles from years ago, that is what grew me. That is really what just shattered the shame completely and ultimately then found my courage. That's so powerful. Um, I'm just listening to you there thinking some of the words you used there. It was about you, before you let yourself find your courage, you were effectively living two lives. You had the, the, the public persona and your inner persona and you were, you were out of alignment. You had to double think. You had to sort of work out who you were, what you could share, what you couldn't share. And I, I mean, I, I can't relate to your experience per se, but I, I know what it's like to have two voices, two heads, mm-hmm. two thought processes. And that power of disalignment of being mm-hmm. that one person in public going, I'm not, I'm, I'm proud of who I am. I'm not ashamed of who I am anymore. I, I can, I can shout and say everything I, I want to. I have no secret. I'm not keeping a secret for anybody anymore. You get me. Yeah. And that, that is a really empowering thing. And I listen to what you're saying there. And I'm, I'm just, my emotions. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's true. Really I guess people saw me, you know, we're great at wearing masks. And I always feel like maybe I was a bit of a swan that everything was fine and great and control up above, but underneath I'm paddling like crazy just to keep up. That's really how I think of how I lived those years. And I was, it was fake. I had this fake smile on my face. I wanted to be the perfect mum, partner, homemaker. But yeah, underneath, I was terrified of people finding out. And now lifting that is like, it's so freeing. It's like brilliant now. I don't, I don't need to hide anymore. And a lot of my friends, some of them that did know, they didn't know all the details and, the, and they didn't know that it was near fatal. They didn't know the level of violence. So Putting that out there is, yeah, it's just like it just really cuts all the chains that really tied me down and and stopped me from growing. It's just, yeah, it's much more freeing from this side to really just say, this is me. This is everything that you need to know. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm almost welling up here. This is really powerful. I'm uh, when I talk to people in in, when talking about in, in DNI in, in corporates in diversity, inclusion, belonging. We, we always talk one of the, the powerful ways of doing this is through storytelling. Is if I, if I, may, I may not be able to have your exact experience, but if I can build this empathy bridge, if I can start to, to relate somehow to your lived experience, then I'm going to, I'm going to be able to be able to encompass you, what you're saying into, into my sense of well-being and my sense of psyche myself. And it's not so I, I feel sympathy for you. So I feel empathy from you and I build strength yeah. from your strength. And. I think by telling your story, and I, I really am not a fan of the word role model or the term role model, but 
we have to recognize that people do look to people for inspiration. If they can, I can. Absolutely. If they've made it, I can make it. And it, that's the relatable experience. I think the, and I, I'm sure you hate being called brave. It's, it's something, it's a, it's a title you're awarded rather than the feeling you necessarily have. Bravery is hindsight. At the time, you're just, you're just doing what you do. Um, but yeah, I'm sure you, you've given a lot of people, you've passed the courage on, if you like. Yeah, it is an interesting word, brave, because I don't want to be considered brave. I'd like it to be normal that we can all speak out and be okay with who we are and be accepted. But I realize a lot of that journey was a personal journey. I had to be okay with who I was and, and I had to accept myself. And I can't undo what happened to me. But, you know, it's a kind of a paradox because in some ways it's clearly shaped my life, but in other ways it's not who I am as well. You know, the real essence of who we're all born with, that fire in our belly, what, whatever we are, whatever our experience is, nothing can change that. And that's what I really believe. But I, I like you, I do believe in the power of sharing stories. And Marina, who is the founder of the Forgiveness Project, she has this beautiful expression. She doesn't call us storytellers. She calls us story healers. And I've just felt that healing power of sharing my story, whether someone's been raped or not. You know, there's always something that we can resonate with someone else. I've just felt it so many times. And, and that what really inspires me to carry on speaking out. It motivates me just to not for me anymore, but what it can do for other people now to unlock their own potential, find their own voice and share their story, speak out. Mm. Do, do you find sometimes that um, that your story is you, you are your story, and sometimes it would just be nice to be Madeline for a, for a while, just just be Madeline, just yeah. be recognised as a, a psychologist or, or, or whatever you are, rather than that being... Yeah, I describe it. You know, I don't want to be either the engine, Joe's the steam anymore, or Joe mm. the trans person. I just want to be Joe, Joe the Lockwood, Joe the person, Joe the yeah, trainer. I, I get that, but I realise my story has the power to help other people. So you know, it really now uh, when I think back, it doesn't feel like me anymore. That person that I speak about, I'm so I've done a ton load of therapy, <laughs> a ton load of speaking therapies, body therapy. I'm, I'm, I feel so healed. And in fact, it's actually grown me now. I kind of, I think there's post-traumatic growth rather than post-traumatic stress disorder. I think I've grown from my experience. Um, so I, I'm okay with that. It's fine. People, you can't stop how people see you. They're going to see you however they want to. But as long as I'm okay with who I am, I think at now that's taken me to this grand old age to forget that. But that's really all that matters. Yeah, um, I'm just reading back on your superpower. Uh, it's your voice and ability to speak out. So your lived experience has given you this superpower. And through this superpower, your purpose and mission in life, if you like, and it's something you're now rising to and using. I, I, I talk about privilege as being something you shouldn't be ashamed of. It's how you wield it. And you're using your privilege of strength and character and wielding that for the good of society. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like I say, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but I wouldn't undo it now because it really has taught me a lot. I mean, it, it's shown me and I can see it in everybody else that we're all so much stronger than we think we are. And really, okay, I needed a lot of support to get past a lot of the issues that I had. I, had, I lived with PTSD for years and wasn't even aware. So many fears, phobias, anxieties. But at the end of the day, once I had worked it and worked it and worked it, I saw that I had a choice and I, I could choose to 
stay in my past or I could choose to grow from it. And that's what I chose to do. So we all have a choice and, and we can get past anything that happens to us. We really can. Mm. So you did a TEDx, if I remember rightly. I did, um, yeah, Glasgow. That, that was it. 2,000 people in a, in a big theatre somewhere, yeah, was it? Yeah, I don't know if I'll ever be doing that again. <laughs> it was 2,100 or something like that. So it was, again, it was one of the most terrifying moments of my life. Even though I had spoken on stages before, it, it really was pretty intense because Glasgow, I didn't know, I know now, is one of the top 10 ones in Europe. So it's a really hard one to get into. So I felt really like proud that I got into that one. Um, but they weren't sure about my story to start with. And then they were obviously really behind me. But once I walked out onto the stage and I stood on that red dot, I just thought, it's not about me speaking now. It's about who's listening. And that just centers me and grounds me. And it gave me the strength to share my story. And, um, you know, even if I just help one person, I think, well, that's my job done. And straight afterwards, I was contacted by a head teacher who I've now had a lot of contact with. And one young woman in the audience that was with the school party started to cry after she heard me. She got very triggered and cut a long story short. She had been raped by her uncle three years prior. I've now met the young woman who is extraordinary. She's fabulous. And she said she would never have spoken out, but she saw me standing there with no shame and being proud of her past. And she said it gave her hope. And I think, well, that's it. That's my job done. I was just there for you that day. But yeah, a lot of people do still contact me after my TED. So yeah, I'm, I'm grateful that I had that platform. It was brilliant, brilliant to have a TEDx. Yeah, that is, I haven't done it yet. Maybe one day. I've just got to find my, my why, but you mm. found your why and your, your message of passion there. So that's, yeah. but you're so right. It's the, it's the small things like, you bump into people, maybe you're at a conference, maybe you're in a different scenario and someone will come up to you and say, can I have a quick word? And they say, I, I saw you this, or I saw that. I, I watched this. Or I saw your YouTube. I heard you speak. And just to let you know, in my particular case, or my, my daughter's trans or my, mm-hmm. my, my husband has come out. And by listening to you has given me some hope. And you think, wow, that's that one person that you wanted to change oh, the light of. And these people, find you and they put effort into into seeking you out to tell you their story and that i, I mean i'm almost in tears i'm sure you are when you hear people's stories as well that it's yeah. such an incredible feeling to know you have made that difference to one person isn't it it is amazing one of my best examples i've been interviewed by fabulous people obviously yourself included but i was interviewed by sir trevor mcdonald which is a hard one to beat i know for bbc radio 4 and to cut a long story short it was you know, once the program had been aired, it was the most amazing thing. My friend, Sandra, who works for the Forgiveness Project, told me her mum had been listening and to cut a very long story short, that day she ended 64 years of her silence when she told her daughter that she had been raped too as a teenager and she had never told anyone up until that moment. She said it's because she heard a woman on the radio who understood how it was that she felt guilty and ashamed and thought it was her fault. And I had made her realize that it was never her fault. She had nothing to be ashamed about. It was down to the perpetrator and she found her voice that day. And I believe that courage is contagious. You know, I, it was somebody else speaking out that helped me find my voice. And I just really intend to use my voice. I just feel like I'm a vehicle or a vessel for helping other people find their courage and their voice. And that to me 
you know, every time I speak, I think of my friend's mum because there's so many people that have just put themselves into their own, you know, uh, prison of silence that can't speak out because of they're ashamed or they're fearful or they're worried about being judged. And and she broke out of that. And my friend said, there's every chance she would have taken that story to the grave and she'd have never known about it. And that breaks my heart. That really does. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the why, isn't it? That's the Absolutely, why. Absolutely. That is my why. Yeah. Um, I'm often, I, I, I often tell this story, but it's about, you know, one person alone when they speak out is often called a snowflake. Mm-hmm. They, they fall to the ground. They're insignificant. They melt when they hit the tarmac. But you put a billion people with voices together, they become an avalanche. An avalanche has power. An avalanche can move mountains. An avalanche can, can cut through and be heard and be reckoned with. So we all need to come together with our voices Absolutely. and not melt as a single self snowflake, become that avalanche. It starts with a single snowflake, really, though, doesn't it? We just have to gather them on, come together. on our way. Yeah, absolutely. Come together and start with being a snowball. Yeah. Start with being a bigger snowball and, and get the momentum. And, and, it, and is, then... it is just like that because the ripple effect of me speaking out, uh, one friend now has started a blog and she's now inspired other people to speak out. And, you know, it's the ripples of where it goes and we never know where it goes as well. Sometimes it's years later, um, you know, someone can sit. So yesterday, actually, I was out hill walking with some friends, which we started to do since lockdown. And we met a couple of young girls that were like my kids' age, they were like 25 and 27. And one of them found me on Instagram because I put a post up about this Knock Hill summit we climbed. And she said, oh, I know you. I didn't realize I had my hair pulled back and no makeup on yesterday. She said, I've been following you on Instagram for years and I've read your book and this happened to me too. I didn't realize when I was chatting to you, that was you. And she said, I watched this podcast with you. And she was just like, yeah, she suddenly could tell me because she had she knew my story and she went into her details with me just this morning on Instagram. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It really is. That's really powerful about it because people often know so much about you by reading your books and your TEDx. They've listened yeah. to your interviews and things. And when you meet people, they've got so much warmth for you because they, mm. they, they feel like they know you really well. And, yeah. and it's, it's, it's kind of a strange feeling sometimes that someone knows you that well and you don't know them. Yeah, I, I'm used to it, but I do obviously write about my husband and my kids in my books. So Stephen gets quite awkward. Oh, Stephen, I want to just give you a big hug. You've just, what a guy, and you supported her all this time. And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> or some of the reviews on Amazon, they'll mention this, you know. I, I do, I used to say that I thought he was an angel sent to stay, save me because at the point in my life when I met him, I was really on a path of self-destruct. And I often wonder if I hadn't met him at that point where it would have gone. I would have gone on to harder drugs or something else. My self-respect, my self-esteem, my self-confidence was really bad. Uh, but so, yes, yeah, so people get very excited when they meet him and he's like, <laughs> you can't cope. But, yeah, it's cute. <laughs> so we're, we're topically what the end of July in 2020 here as we're having this conversation. And mm-hmm. I think. We'd have to be living in a cave if we didn't realize that COVID-19 was around us and the world changed significantly in March for most people. And I think we're both aware that it's having a, a, a significant impact on people who are in a home environment, living in a toxic environment, mm-hmm. uh, domestic violence, domestic abuse, um, not just women, but also when we think about LGBT people living mm-hmm. in an environment that's not safe for them. 
it's a, it's a big challenge. I mean, are you hearing stories now from yeah, people? Yeah, I'm also a patron for a, a Scottish organisation called Say Women, and we support young women that have been sexually abused and are facing homelessness because it's no longer safe to stay at home. So Pam, the CEO, and myself were spoke very early on on the radio because they were launching a grant a scheme to get some more money to add extra services to the service they already provide. And within the first three weeks of lockdown, 16 women, 14 women and two young girls were murdered at the hands of their partner. So I think for anyone, life was tough before it just got a whole lot tougher. You know, I think when we're out of lockdown completely, I'm in Scotland, so we're kind of a little bit behind England. The calls to the National Abuse Helpline, to rape crisis, the, the need for refuge is just going to go up. It's just going to be huge. Um, so, yeah, for a lot of people, home is not a safe place. It really isn't. And I'm grateful. I, I had moaned a bit because I had my house suddenly busy again. I'd got, I realized I got used to my peace and quiet. I quite liked it. Suddenly had a husband home and two kids. But actually now I'm really grateful for this time. It's brilliant. But, yeah, I have to recognize, we have to see that for home, a lot of people, it's not a good place. It's it's tough. It's really tough out there. Yeah, and it does worry me sometimes when you, when you listen to the, the corporate voice, if you like, saying, oh, this new way of working is going to be great for our company. Um, we'll have people working from home, working remotely. People love it. We get so much good feedback. But I, I think when we go back to this inclusion, belonging sort of focus, that sometimes we're not hearing all the voices or we're not, we're not putting those voices into enough context, amplify them to make sure those concerns are, are listened to and addressed. Yeah, and even simple things, you know, I have a, a friend who teaches IT and she said, you know, most of her students don't have access to the Wi-Fi. They're maybe refugees. They don't have a laptop. They don't have, you know, the needs to, you know, do the class at home. She spends all this time preparing lessons, normally have 30 people in person. She might have one or two that turn up. You know, so it's hard for her and it's really hard for them. And she said she's heard all their backstories. They all have struggles and their priorities now are looking after their family or their brothers and sisters. And it's not easy. It's, it's a lot of challenges. This, 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 whatever this is bringing. And it's also hard for people with their mental health because everything's uncertain and we like to think we're in control, but we have to get okay with not knowing. And that's really tough for people. We don't know where, how this is going to look, what it's, when it's going to end, if it will ever end. Maybe we'll always be impacted on this in some way. But uh, going back to the title of the show, Finding Courage and the Voice to Speak Out, it's really important that we, we create uh, permission or uh, allowing people to have that voice. Because if we don't hear them, They'll, their voice will be buried. And what worries me is because the, the way the employment market, the way the, the way the jobs are at the moment, a lot of people have been made redundant. A lot of businesses are closing. A lot of airlines, entertainment, events, all shutting down. So maybe people are going to put up with more because of they're worried about their job. They're more likely to suffer. Part with an employer not treating them fairly because they know that there's no job, so that per- that person's going to be loyal. So it does take a lot of privilege and courage to be able to stand up for yourself, knowing full well that that could impact your employment status. Absolutely, because I can't imagine right now if you lose your job, it's a good time to find another job. It must be really worrying for people just thinking, well, I'll just put up with it because it's better the devil you know, really, isn't it? So, yeah, it's finding a balance, really, isn't it? 
and, and the workplace was your source of refuge often, wasn't it? You had ally support, Absolutely. friends. And for kids as well, you know, for a lot of children that have been forced to stay at home, that are getting abused or neglected at home, or they only got their one cooked meal when they were at school, it's been tough on children as well. It's, it's a really tough time. Is there an answer? I, I there's, no, there's no, there's no magic wand here. So how, how, I mean, can you think of anything that the employers could start doing? Can they, how do they engage with their teams and their staff? I guess that really depends on what the employer is like to start with. <laughs> if they're a, if an employer with heart and they care about their employees, then yeah, you're really you lucked out. If it's someone that just wants you to produce the the number crunches or get the figures up, whatever, and doesn't really care about you, yeah, it depends if there's heart in your organisation or not. Mm. It's the, it's the pulse. It's the it's the corporate values and culture, isn't it? That's yeah, the important absolutely. Thing. And if those aren't there to start with, then it's going to be tough. It's going to be really tough. Do you think we'll come out of this in a, in a year, six months? Are you, are you seeing this as a, a kind of forever thing now? You know what? I think of like nine eleven. I mean, my youngest one is going to be 19 next week. And I said, you know, it used to be a time, Layla, where we never used to take our toiletries in little plastic bags. I used to have a great big carry-on toiletry box filled to the brim of 100, 500 mils, whatever. You, really? I've always known plastic bags. Could you take bottles? So in some way, I wonder if we'll always have to have our temperature taken if we go to a restaurant or always have to leave our details or, you know, there's going to be something that will just be become normal because now you don't even question it you buy your little bottles you fill them up you put them in your plastic bag you know you fly whatever not that we're doing much flying at the moment but i wonder if it's always going to impact on us in some way but uh yes yeah, it's this bit surreal at times it's like living in a science fiction movie it really is when we look back I often think it's a bit like the it's, it's like the Will Smith movie, isn't it? The zombies, and everything. Yes. Except when you look out the window, there are no zombies. No. It's like the same thing, but there's there's no there's nothing visible to hang hang this 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 crisis on. Mm-hmm. It's just this invisible virus. Can't yeah, say. but but I think it shows. I mean, in the beginning, for me, the environment was intense, and I'm meant to be a motivational speaker, and I I really struggled. You know, I thought. <gasps> I gave up working as a psychotherapist. I'm going to put my energy into speaking. And I did not feel motivated at all. I was really struggling. And uh, I think that collective energy was hard as well because I think I had my own stuff. And then you feed into the collective fear out there in the community and collective anxieties. And I had a lot of people messaging me about their anxieties, people with unprocessed trauma that was getting triggered and new memories resurfacing. But I think now I can't, don't know if I speak just for me, but I feel like we've got used to it now and we're, we've, we're adapting and we've got used to this change, not saying that we like it, but it just shows you that we are adaptable. And yes, that was the initial trauma when it first came in, but we have grown into it and we're getting used to it doesn't mean that I particularly like online working I have to be honest I much prefer a live audience and people but uh, it has its points as well you know I can wear my tracky bottoms and my slippers and nobody needs to know Uh, just pop down from my room upstairs it's you know it has advantages as well but I think it might impact us on us for a long time to come I I think you're right definitely think you're right and I think just the change of attitude we're now having towards interactions with each other. We're now, our default position is almost a mistrust for people mm-hmm. around us rather than where we were before maybe trusting or 
or not even considering our what personal space. What do you mean by that? By mistrust? Well, there's this whole, if someone's not wearing a mask, oh, okay. you're worried about them. If someone's invading our personal space, uh, we're now, we're now thinking, well, I've got elderly parents. If I mix with people, if I get on a train, am I worried about my surfaces? Am I worried about things yeah. around me? So yeah. we're kind of starting to mistrust and feel insecure. I think when we're compliant in Scotland, we all wear our masks. I mean, it was mandatory before England, and we all kind of socially distanced to a whole. But yeah, no, I, I understand. Certainly, my mum has been diagnosed with cancer again after ten years, and so I'm now really worried. As we're opening up. I don't want to spend too much time with other people because then Sheena has to be shielded again if she goes through radiotherapy. And so, yeah, I, I, I understand what you mean. And I think we're all going to become germaphobes. We're going to become so obsessed. My hands have never been so clean. The amount of gel that we go through. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I'm considering, you know, I, so the early March, I was, um, in Newcastle on the Monday, then I flew to Amsterdam for three days. And by the time mm -hmm. I got back on Friday the 13th, the world had changed. Mid-flight, I didn't get the memo or something. No one had told me that by the time I got back, everything was different. And I, I remember coming back on the train and phoned my wife up and said, look, I'm coming home. I've got notified that I may have been in contact with someone who may have been in contact with someone on the Virgin train on the way, on the way to Newcastle. This is the early stages of track mm -hmm. trains before it was official. And we had to have this conversation about, should I come home? Because if I come home, I've now bought anything I have with me, having spent three days in the airplanes and conferences and things. I'm now potentially bringing something back into the home. So I almost felt like we had to negotiate permission for me to come back. And how is that going to impact my wife? How is that going to impact those around me? How how would that impact her ability to look after her parents, her elderly parents, or my elderly parents? So suddenly, it's not just about me; yeah. it's about my impact on others. And I, I went to London to have my hair done and do a few other things two weeks ago. And I'm thinking, as I'm coming back, I've I've been on the underground, I've been on a train, I've been I've been here, I've been there. Um, okay, with a with a with a mask on, but now I, I've now bought an environment back with me. That wasn't in, in our household before. So, what's my impact on our family unit? So, but it's hard. Do you want to just hide away completely, or do you want to get back to some kind of normality as well? And I guess we're going to have to risk being exposed to it at some point. Um, yeah, it's very hard. So, in the very beginning, we, we had a lot of families in my own immediate family that was affected by it. My aunt died of COVID. My brother-in-law has myeloma, which means that he had only just had a second stem cell transplant. So he's not allowed out at all. He's not been out for about three months and he's just been allowed out to go walking now. I think at the end of July, he, he can still go out now, but then he'll still have to shield. He'll still have to be, you know, two meters apart from everyone, but he might have to stay like that until he gets a vaccine. So my two lots of our parents are both in their 80s. One set is better behaved than the other set. But we were cooking and looking after all these people, not cooking, doing all their shopping. So it's it's really tough. And then I'm thinking, well, I'm going to the supermarket. I've touched something. I could potentially bring it to them. And we were trying to protect them. But we could drive ourselves crazy, really, couldn't we? Oh, yeah. We double think about everything, don't we? I mean, yeah. We, we, we went to the cinema uh, a couple of weeks ago. And... I can't remember. I forget what we went to see now, but what we went to see, and there was about five people in the entire cinema. Yeah, it doesn't appeal to me <laughs> right now. Appeal. No, it was just it was an empty experience. Yeah. There was there was the all these things that were familiar, like going shopping. 
when you go shopping, it's a it's not a nice, comfortable yeah. experience. You can't get go, in and you get out as quickly as possible. It is. And, uh, yeah. so, so all of that, all those brain chemicals that we got pleasure from by doing these things, spending money, I- enjoying ourselves, uh, trying on a new dress, buying something nice to wear. Where, where are we going to wear that nice thing? We're not yeah. going to go party. Yeah. We're not going to the pub. Uh-huh. So you go to the shop. I was holding this dress up thinking, I love this dress. I thought, I'm never going to wear it. Not, not this year. There's no point in buying it. Tracky and, uh, bottoms and, and some slippers would be nice. Yeah. Waist. Well, my first trip out was to Tiso, which is an outdoor shop, and I bought some walking boots. <laughs> that was really exciting. And some waterproof trousers because I'm doing more hill walking and walking outside than ever before. So, But it was so exciting to go and buy something, and I needed a new rucksack, and I got some glass of plasters for my blisters and I was like yeah this is really exciting to go that was the first time I'd been in a shop for about four months other than a supermarket or a pharmacy and spent some money but yeah the, the to go shopping there doesn't really appeal to me but it was like quick in try my boots on and then get out as quickly as possible yeah I'm, I'm spending most of my money these days on on, on gadgets and technical yes. and uh, remote speaking stuff and podcasting and mics and things. That's my fix because yeah. uh, I'm actually using them uh, and, and buying lots of tops <laughs> and, and, and no bottoms because, you yeah. know, as you say, just trackies and stretchy pants are fine. That's moment, it. Aren't they? I know, slippers. <gasps> Every time you stand up, you think, oops, sorry, I just <laughs> hide away from the camera, just shuffle away. <laughs> so you wrote your book. I mean, was that before or after the TEDx? That was a little while ago now. So Unbroken has been out since April 2017. So I wrote it like a year or two before, but the publishing process takes uh, a while. So I was very lucky just before um, lockdown. It had been recorded, so it's now available on Audible. And in January next year, 2021, I'm going to be translated into Italian. So it's amazing because it's like three, three and a half years old, but nearly four years old, and that I can still get all these other options, you know, to happen. But yeah, it, and sadly, it's a, my story is not uncommon. It, it's a story of many, many people. And it's, I guess, the kind of book that will never go out of fashion because every day somewhere on our planet, a man, a woman, a child will be raped or abused. That's a heavy yeah. sentence to hang on, isn't it? Yeah. It is, but it's it's sadly, yeah. it's the truth. So, uh, yeah. So, so what's your optimistic view of the future? Where, where, where's, how's the world going to change for the better? Or, or are you, are you still pessimistic about the future? You know what? Um, I never really intended to be a speaker. I always call myself an accidental speaker, but I realize, uh, you know, that my voice really is my power that will help other people. And I've always just gone with the flow. I, I did have a tantrum about remote speaking in the beginning. I have to be honest, but I've now delivered a couple of keynotes at, um, some online network events or conferences and it was okay. It was actually really good. It, it wasn't as bad as I thought. So, there is that future, but I'm still very happy to just go with the flow and just see what comes to me. I've, I've been lucky. Um, I choose to speak. I don't need to speak to support myself. I have a, another uh, source of income. I look after some properties for my mum. So that I've, I'm fine, you know, secure financially from that point of view. But I, I speak because it comes from my heart. And so I will always find a way to speak out, share my story to help other people find their voice and their courage. Fantastic. So how can people get hold of you if they want to make contact? What's the best way for them to find you? 
Well, I have a website, madeleineblack.co.uk, and I am on all the social media platforms. Apart from TikTok, I can't really get into TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've not, I've not sussed that one. I'm on no. Twitch, I haven't sussed either of those two. Oh, I don't even know what no. <laughs> Awesome. So, I mean, I mean, I'm sure to everyone who's listening today that there's there's so much there to take inspiration from, to to to, to take courage from as well. Um, so a huge thank you uh, for your time today, for sharing your story again. And also to the listener out there who's tuned in and, and got this far. Thank you very much. Uh, I'd ask you to keep subscribing to this podcast and to future episodes uh, of the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Uh, tell your friends and colleagues because uh, I'm sure they would love to share this story as well. And I have a number of other exciting guests. You, you think Madeline's powerful. I mean, I've got some other powerful storytellers and speakers lined up as well that I, you'll definitely be inspired by over the next few weeks and months. And if you are one of those people that has a story and would like to be a guest and to share with the listeners, then please let me know. And as usual, I'd welcome your feedback and suggestions to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. Um, so how we can improve the show or other topics we can cover. So my name is Joanne Lockwood. It's been an absolute pleasure to be your host for this podcast today. Catch you next time. Bye.